All right, who knows who this is? Martin Luther. Who knows where this took place? Worms. Worms, Germany. Or you say it in Germany, Worms? How do you say it? Huh? Worms? Is my accent okay? Worms? Okay, good, thank you. Um, who can tell me the year? A long time ago. Who? What'd you say? 1520. Close. 1521. That was wonderful. Martin Luther was summoned to appear before Charles V to defend what it is that he had taught or written. And he thought he was going to defend himself. However, is often the case in these sorts of things. It was very clear that he was not there to defend what he had written and taught. He was there to recant their contents. And so on his book on the table were 25 books or titles or pamphlets. They were read. And Martin Luther was asked two questions. First of all, did you write these? And will you now recant their teachings? Martin Luther requested more time to respond Went back to his room, prayed all night long. 4 p.m. the the next day, arrived and he said those famous words. The works are mine. There's the first question. Second question. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me. Amen. Now, some people later, this is where he said, here I stand. It's probably an emendation. He probably didn't say that. He just said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I don't accept these things. God help me. Amen. See, for Martin Luther, it was all about the Bible. It was, it, was, it was all about the teaching of Scripture. He didn't touch, trust the Pope. He didn't trust the councils. He, he, he didn't trust God what they said because he had seen their corruption. He had seen how they contradicted the Bible. They'd seen how they contradicted each other. They couldn't trust them, but he could trust the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. My message this morning is entitled Sola Scriptura. It's the first of five topical messages that I want to bring to you over the next five weeks. I'm going to bring to you a sermon series often entitled The Solas. The Solas. These solas are really the core of what those in the Protestant Reformation believed. In case you didn't know, the Protestant Reformation was that act, I believe, of God that took place in the 1500s when men like Martin Luther and and John Calvin, and Ulrich Ulrich Zwingli, and others protested against the abuses and errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And eventually the church split into the Protestant side, these are the protesters, and into the Catholic side, which would be the, the mother church. And I'm just saying our theological heritage comes straight from the Protestant side. 
You know, people sometimes ask me about our church, say we're a non-denominational Bible teaching church, and I often say, but we are fully in line with the Reformers and what they taught. Just because there's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of times people don't even know what I'm talking about when I say that. But there's so many caricatures of what a Baptist church is or what a Presbyterian church is. And I just, I just want to say we are in the mainstream of, of theological history. And so, since our heritage is traced back to these reformers, I thought it would be good to take five weeks really to, to think back upon the foundational principles about what they, they did in history and what they stood for in separating from the Catholic Church. My messages will be entirely topical. Unlike my pattern, we're not going to just open to a passage of Scripture and just work through that passage of Scripture. I've done that for uh, 14 years, and rare has been a topical sermon, but today we have it. We're going to have it for the next couple of weeks, but we'll be, we'll be in the Bible a bit. But today, even more particularly, it's going to be more theological, um, uh, just more combating the errors and, and talking about the, the divisive line here between sola scriptura and those who didn't believe it. Um, and, and in terms of illustrations, I'm going to give a good dose of church history. Okay, some of these stories you're not familiar with. You need to know some of these stories of the Reformation. So you say, what are the solas? Well, I'm glad you asked because the first one here is sola scriptura. This is scripture alone. That is, we look to the Scripture alone for our authority and for our guidance in spiritual matters. John Huss, who was before Luther about a hundred years, once said to his opponents, who are calling him to denounce his beliefs, because John Huss was a man who believed the Bible, just like Martin Luther. He, he came along later. But this, this Reformation was rolling as people started to see what the Bible contained. And Huss said, show me from the Scriptures and I will repent and recant. But unless you show me from them, I'm not going to be, is the the implication there. So we have sola scriptura. Next week, we're going to look at sola fide. This is faith alone. That is, salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus. You don't combine your works to your salvation. Come simply trusting in Jesus, the Messiah. Then the next week, we're going to look at sola gratia. That is, grace alone. Salvation is entirely a gift of God. It's not based on anything that we merited. It doesn't come through the sacraments or tradition. It comes only through Jesus. There's our fourth one. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Salvation comes only through Christ. Just a, a, a different aspect uh, of things. It's not the sacraments, it's through Jesus. And then finally, we'll look at Soli Deo Gloria. It talks about how we should live. We should live to God's glory and God's glory alone. In fact, all the glory for our salvation, all the glory for our life goes to God both now and for eternity. Our lives will be lived for the glory of God. Now, in case you haven't noticed, these aren't English words. These are Latin words. Um, but they're close enough to the English that I, I know that you can see them. But the, the common word there is sola or solus or soli, depending upon the, the case of the noun that it modifies. It just means only, like a, a, an aspiring airplane pilot. It's a big deal to take your solo flight, your, your flight alone. These are the things that are alone <clears throat> or only. We look to the scriptures alone. We're justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, on the merit of Christ alone, live to the glory of God alone. And I just say all the reformers believed in all five of these things. They embraced them wholeheartedly. Though it's actually interesting, I didn't know that until this week, that the formal arrangements of these didn't come until the 1900s, more like 1950s. So if you'd have talked to someone in the 1800s, they wouldn't have known what the solas are. But they are an attempt 
to look back on the Reformation and say, what is it that the Reformers stood for in contra to the, the Roman Catholic Church? And these would have been fully embraced. If you had have talked to Luther or Zwingli or, or Calvin or Wycliffe or, or Huss or Tyndale, and you said, okay, these are five solas, they would have looked at them and probably in about five seconds said, I believe all those things. I embrace all those things, absolutely. I've not seen them defined like that, but it's a wonderful way to define them. Absolutely, this is what I stand for in contradiction to the, the Roman Catholic Church. There's no doubt because, I say that, because the Reformers all referred to the Scriptures this way, and they referred to faith this way, and they referred to grace in Christ this way, and they referred to the life lived for the glory of God in this way, even if they didn't use these exact terms. Well, these are the cries of the Reformation. These are the cause of the Protestant Church. And first and fundamental to all of their beliefs and all of our beliefs is sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is sufficient to accomplish God's work in the soul. In other words, in order to understand God's will for your life, in order to understand the ways of God, you don't need human counsels. You don't need popes and priests to tell you. You don't need others to tell you what to believe. The scriptures alone are sufficient. And if you read them and meditate on them and pray over them, And if you seek the Lord with all your heart, he will make his ways plain to you that it's Christ crucified is the only way that we are right before God. It's not our works. It's Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We're made right with God. As you seek other theological things, it's the scripture that will help you. God has given us the scriptures. The catechism question says, what does the Bible principally teach? The Bible principally teach what it is we are to believe about God and what it is that he requires of us. So the Bible tells us everything we need to know about God. If it's not in the Bible, we don't need to know it. If it's in the Bible, we ought to pursue it and seek it. And I just say this week, it's sola scriptura. This is really the foundational fight that the reformers had. Because once you solve sola scriptura, you solve all four of these others. Because once you establish, okay, here's the principle that we're going to stand on the Bible, all these just flow out of that. That's why we deal with it today. That's why I'm going to be a little bit more polemic today. But this was the foundational fight of the Reformers. And here's really the big question. So when you take your Bible, are you going to put it in the hands of the people? Or are you going to put it in the hands of the, the priests and the popes who will tell you what the Bible says? See, because in the days of the, the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had a hold on the church, and it wasn't about the Bible. It was about the popes. It was about the councils that ruled the day. They were the keepers of the truth. They were the interpreters of Scripture. And in their day, knowledge of the Bible was scant. People just didn't know. They just followed what their priests said. Which, by the way, is still very true today in the Catholic Church. You you give me an average Catholic and an average Protestant, and I think that the Bible knowledge of an average Catholic is about here. The Bible knowledge of an average Protestant is about here. Okay? And I trust that our knowledge is much, much higher than that because we are in the line of the Reformation that says, give the Bible to the people. Get, get it out there. But by and large, in the, in the Dark Ages, why do you think it's called the Dark Ages? Because they were kept in the dark about the truth of the Bible. 
In the days of the Dark Ages, people were kept in the dark. But it changed in the days of the Reformation. By the way, I've heard Catholics say, well, people were illiterate back then. They couldn't read. And I just say this. How hard was the Catholic Church working to enable and gift the people to read so that they could read the Bible for themselves? They weren't working very hard because the system was working for them pretty well. You keep the people in ignorance. The money keeps coming in. You live a pretty nice life. That's how it was. But see, it's the Protestants who will go out to unreached tribes and new tribes and will listen to their language and write it down and teach them how to read so that they can give them the Bible so they can read for themselves. That's a Protestant idea is to, is to teach literacy so that you can read the Bible. Well, it changed in the days of the Reformation when the Reformers challenged the Roman Catholic Church and they fought hard for the Scriptures to be in the hands of a laity, in the hands of the everyday worker. In fact, William Tyndale, here he is, is famous for his arguments with some Roman Catholic clergy. They, they argued in favor of the church and popes and councils, and here's what Tyndale reported. He said this, I defy the pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of scriptures than you do. That was his heart's passion, is to have the, the little boy out there who, who knows very little by way of reading and understanding. I'm going to give him enough reading so he can read the Bible. He knows more than what you guys do in the Catholic Church because you're not even looking at the Bible so much. And so Tyndale made his life's work to get the Scriptures into the hands of a laity. He translated the Bible into English and spent his life spreading the copies of the Bible throughout all of Europe. And eventually he is betrayed, charged with heresy. Here's a famous picture of him. Tied at the stake and strangled shortly after his body was burned. Now, in this famous picture, we can see a, a little speech bubble coming out of his mouth. Can any of you read that? Who's got 25 vision? <clears throat> can you read it on your notes, kids? Is it clear there? Huh? Lord? Opt? Open? The eyes? The king of England. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And this prayer was answered in some regard. James the first, 1611, completed under his oversight. <clears throat> Took several years. <clears throat> Can't remember, 1605, 1606. He said, let's get an English translation of the Bible that we can authorize. That we can say, yes, this is. So no longer do we have to have these Tyndales and, and Wycliffe's around subversively, illegally. Let's get this Bible open. And, and so in 1611, when the authorized version, the King James, was translated, it was then distributed far and wide. That was 75 years after Tyndale's death. The king was no longer going after people, but the Bible was being able to be distributed freely. But Tyndale wasn't the only one to die at the stake for trying to get the scripture into the hands of the people. Um, I read even this week an article that, that, that was entitled um, Martyrs for the English Bible. Those who, who died seeking to distribute the English Bible. Even before Tyndale, 150 years, there's a man named John Wycliffe. He experienced the same fate for the same crime. He, too, is passionate about getting the Bible into the hands of the ordinary people. He might read it for themselves. And he, likewise, was martyred. 
Now, to be clear, Wycliffe and Tyndale were not martyred because they distributed the Bible. Uh, They were martyred because of their beliefs, which were contrary to Roman Catholic Church, which were consistent with the Bible. Their beliefs came from the Bible that they worked hard to distribute, and it was their conviction that the Bible taught these things, and they wanted to get the Bible into the hands of people so the people could read and see the abuses of the Catholic Church in their day. And their conviction was that when you get the Bible into their hands, people will read it and see the corruption and seek to then reform the church. Martin Luther labored hard to get the Bible in the hands of the people. After he he stood before them and he said, I do not recant, I cannot, God help me. Then um, they were sought to be, the, the people sought to kill him. And so he was kidnapped by his friends and taken away to a castle someplace where he hid away for a couple years as he translated the Bible into German. Then that Bible disseminated out. He so longed for the people in the German tongue to, be, to have the Bible. See, because they, they really believed that if people can read the Bible for themselves, God would open their eyes. They'd come to the conclusion of the Reformers because the Scriptures are clear of these things. We talk about sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. Solus, the, the scripture is clear about all of these things. And, and, and there was no doubt in their minds, put the Bible in the hands of the people, that people are going to do much better. See, their, their hope was that there would be a reformation in the church. And so think about what they did. They were battling the authority of the church by, by appealing to a higher authority, that is, the, the scriptures, which the church was working hard to bring down. Which, by the way, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, the, the, the Catholic Church at one time believed in church, in the Bible, and tradition. In many ways now, it's the magisterium who has sovereignty over the Bible, sadly. But anyway, I just say this by, by um, pause. Never take for granted the Bible in your hand. In America, we often hear July 4th, that freedom costs, Right? And Memorial Day, we honor those who have died for our freedom. And so likewise, the Bible in your hand cost. It cost a lot. It cost a lot of blood. In fact, I remember seeing a martyr's Bible. You remember seeing that Bible? It was a a man. He had a large Bible collection. And, uh, you know, the the Bible is about like that thick (laughs) back in those days. It hadn't uh, mastered thin paper yet. And uh, this man owned a Bible. And we don't know who it was, but he was placed on the stake, burned at the stake. When his blood was dripping down, his Bible was dipped into his blood that was burning and thrown into the funeral fire. Pyre. Someone nabbed that out. And it was very interesting that you could see it kind of kind of maybe got about a third of the end of the Bible. Remember that? And it was all purple and stuff. And this thing was like 500 years old. But it's really a picture to me of those who caught, who lost their life because of the word of God. And so never underestimate what we have in our laps. That really is going to be the big application today is, do you believe sola scriptura? Do you act on it? Well, our topic today is sola scriptura. And one of the first verses that come to mind, of course, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So why don't you open there your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Which it is interesting, as I did my, my research this week, um, particularly Catholics, I listened to a Catholic-Protestant debate where the Catholic was putting forth his position, the Protestant putting forth his, his position, and was strongly mentioned, there's no place that Sola Scripture is taught in the Bible. And I would say that's true. 
Right? So we've got we to gotta work at it a little bit, just like the Trinity is not taught in the Bible. But I think there are enough principles that lead us to the conclusion that sola scripture is what we should look to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. I'm just going to read this verse, make a few observations to carry on. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, these verses simply put forth the unique character of the Scripture. They are breathed out by God. It's where we often call it inspiration. It's why we call the Scriptures the Word of God, because they were breathed out. God's, God's Word breathed out, and now we have them contained in our Bibles. And in that way, the Bible is unique. No other text in all the world can make such a claim. In fact, the Roman Catholics, they don't even claim that their, their writings are inspired. They claim they're infallible. How they can be infallible, not inspired, I'm not sure. And they're authoritative. But they, they, don't, they don't touch this word. This word is, is so special. It speaks about the absolute authority that the Bible has in our lives. No other text can make this claim rightly. Certainly there are those that, that try to make that claim. But this is what Solo Scripture is about. It's all about authority. When it comes to spiritual matters, are we going to look to the Bible alone? Or are we going to look to the church? Or what about our own feelings? Like, where should we look? Second Timothy clearly tells us that Scripture is what God has inspired. And it's the Scriptures that are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And it's precisely God's role in creating the scriptures that gives us this assurance that the Bible is authority over our lives. And you want to say, how does that assurance happen? Well, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I'm just going to read this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's, it's God moving men to write. So did men write the Bible or did God write the Bible? And the answer is... Yes, men wrote, it's moved by God, God inspired, it's breathed out. It is both a human book and a divine book. Can you believe it? God has spoken to us. His very words as he moved the writers to write to us. Now, here's what's slippery about the Catholic Church. In the days of the Reformation, the church didn't deny, didn't deny this. It simply claimed, yes, the Bible's inspired, but we have got another authority. We have this authority that's called tradition. Now, tradition is a broad, is a broad word. Literally, it just means the things handed down. That is the things handed down from the fathers to the fathers to the fathers to the fathers. And so they look at the, the tradition, that which was believed and handed down. It's gone before us. Sometimes it's written, sometimes it's oral. But tradition speaks about in the Roman Catholic world, the official teaching of the church, whatever form it, it comes about. And, and here's the issue with the sola scriptura. It's about tradition. Is it scripture alone or is it, and they don't deny scripture, is it scripture and tradition? So like Jehovah's Witnesses, right? It's, it's their translation of the Bible. It's the Bible, but it's their translation of the Bible. The Mormons, it's the, it's the Bible, yes, but it's the Book of Mormon. And so what happens fundamentally in all those places is, is their interpretation reigns. The watchtower reigns, Jehovah's Witnesses. And the tradition then becomes to reign and actually goes over the Bible because it interprets the Bible, tells us what the Bible says for us. 
But there's the idea. Is it Scripture or is it Scripture and tradition? Right? Is the Bible sufficient to guide us in faith and practice or do we need another authority right, to clarify the debated issues? Now, so I looked at this. The answer, I don't think, is as simple as this. Away with tradition. All done. Because there's a role for the teaching of the church. There are those in our day and age, in light of American individualism, though, who would take the words of Ruth Luther, unless I'm bound by my conscience and run with them, that my conscience is the ultimate guide. And as I read the Bible, it's just my conscience. And fooey on the church, fooey on every other teacher, it's only me and God, me and the Bible. Thus, effectively, in many places, sola scriptura has become solo scriptura. But solo scriptura is not sola scriptura. The reformers were not arguing, let's take all tradition and let's all throw it out and let's disregard all the teaching of the church. It's not what they were arguing at all. They, they were arguing the, the church then coming to an equal authority or authority beyond. Because there's room for the church and others to teach and to guide. Consider this verse, right? 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, it's the church that upholds the truth. And by church, I'm not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. I'm referring to the believers in Christ in, in community. See, we don't take the Scriptures in a vacuum as if each of us are an end in and of ourselves. No, we come as a part of bo- a body. We come as a part of history to seek and understand the Scriptures. I, I believe that there is a corporate wisdom to understanding what the scriptures teach. If you've got some belief that nobody else holds to except you because you see it in the scripture, I would be a little, um, a little shocked at that. Would, would warn you, encourage you, like maybe that's not something you should hold about. I've got a friend of mine who, actually a friend, I haven't talked to him for 20 plus years, but... He started his own church. He, he calls himself, we're the only true church. And when asked on his website, have you ever seen another church that's right? He says, there may be one out there, but I haven't seen them because they don't agree with me because it's just me and I'm the only one who interprets it rightly and my congregation of his whatever, eight kids and five other people in his church. He really believes he is the only church on the planet Earth because everyone else is apostatized. Say that he's in danger. Because there is a, there's a, a corporate community to understanding things. Beware of going solo. What's new is not true, and what's true is not new. So if you've come up with some teaching that wasn't taught in the historical church, just be weary of that. Along with the Reformers, I do believe there's a place for traditional life for the church. Um, first of all, think about this. What makes up the New Testament? I mean, in order to get to Scripture itself, you need to have something else persuading you that that's where your Scripture comes from. And I believe that's come from the, the wisdom of the grassroots movement of the church. Paul speaks of tradition. Look over in Second Thessalonians. We're in Second Timothy. Just, just uh, go back. Just two books. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, consider what Paul says. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, 
either by our spoken word or by our letter. The traditions, those are handed things. Stand firm and hold to the things that we handed down to you. They were taught. He's telling them even to hold fast to oral teachings. There's a, a tradition there he speaks about. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Second Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according with the tradition you've received from us, not according to the things that we have handed down to you. Now, you can say, yeah, the tradition is apostolic teaching, and I would say, yes, tradition, right tradition, needs to be consistent with apostolic teaching for sure. But I believe this. There are many things we look to for history to help and guide us. We look fondly to the history of the early church, particularly I talked about how books of the Bible, which books of the Bible in the New Testament well, it's, it's a good study to go back and see the church fathers, those who are close to the, to the apostles. See, and, and as, as God was working to establish his canon. What, how did God work to establish his canon? How was he working in, in the people of God to establish which books of the Bible are there? It's good to see the, the fathers quoting which books as authoritative. And there's, there's some discussion and, and back along, but a long time, 300 years, 400 years, they established in the New Testament just like, exactly like we have here. And we do well to look at the ecumenical councils and weigh them heavily. Uh, particularly the early ones, as they get later and later, I think the church gets further and further from Christ, and it's, they're not so helpful. But the first one, Council of Nicaea, as soon as the persecution stopped in 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea gathered together and condemned the Arians, who, by the way, were in the majority. Arians, or modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that Jesus is a small g god. Uh, the archangel, Michael, is, is Jesus. Condemn them and affirm the full deity of Jesus. And I say, we embrace that tradition of the Council of Nicaea. We stand fully in line of the Council of Nicaea. We look at the Council of Constantinople or Ephesus or, or Chalcedon as they clarified the nature of Christ. And we stand fully with them, two natures, one person. So Jesus is fully divine and fully human at the same time. It's a historic position of the church, and that we can affirm. And yet, there's some things in those councils that we're like, whoa, I don't know. Theotokos, God-bearer. Mary is called early on the bearer of God, which leads then to being the mother of God, which leads then to, like Mary, being the source of Jesus of God and the worship of Mary. And we'll see a bit later how far Mary has, has gotten. But I think it's right here where you can see the difference between the solo scriptura, solo scriptura, and the Catholic Church. Solo, I, I, I wanted to put these on a continuum, but I didn't have enough space on my, on my screen here. But solo scriptura says just the Bible and me, right? It's just the Bible and me and God, just, just like this. Solo scriptura looks at tradition and says there's some helps there in the collective wisdom of those who've walked with God for years. Scripture and tradition is the Roman Catholic position, which, of course, I... I don't believe, I don't think we do. Um, Tradition is authoritative. I don't think that's right. But those are the differences between tradition. I think we look at tradition as helpful. They look at it as authoritative. And the difference here is that to the Roman Catholic, when the church speaks, they're authoritative and infallible. But to the Protestant church, as the church speaks, it's to be tested. as it teaches the scripture, the authority is there entirely, the pillar and support of the truth. But when the deviation comes from the scripture, they go beyond the authority is null and void because all of a sudden they don't have any. So what we mean by sola scriptura, looking at the scriptures as final authority. 
not the self-proclamations of the church. And, and there's some, some reasons why we need to like back off of the church. But particularly, I, I come up with two reasons. One is first the inventions of the church. See, it's one thing for a church to gather together in humility and, and to clarify the teaching of the Bible. And that's what they did in many of these councils. They said, okay, now what, what does the Bible say? And they're really praying on their knees and trusting God, saying, okay, now how do we understand this? Really seeking God's will to understand the Bible. There's one thing when you do that, and something entirely different when you invent your own conclusions about something the Bible doesn't even talk about. And those are to be rejected. So you think about the Roman Catholic Church. They've invented the New Testament priesthood. The New Testament doesn't talk about a special class of priests. It talks about pastors and elders and overseers. Or the papacy. There's nothing in the Bible about the papacy. Or praying to Mary. There's nothing in the Bible about that. In fact, strongly against that. Or purgatory. Or their whole system of penance and indulgences. Scripture knows nothing about these things. The church, though, is, is inventing them, I believe, adding to help their cause, and therefore they're to be rejected because they're not Scripture alone. And more and more, it's even these inventions are coming. In the last 150 years, the church has proclaimed infallibly the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, which means that, that Mary was conceived apart from original sin, means that she wasn't born into humanity. Because all in humanity are fallen, and we are born sinners. But Mary was Immaculate Conception. Because how, how can you have a... A Jesus who comes pure out of a womb that's not pure. Well, you got Well, what about Mary? Did she come out of a pure a womb that was not pure? It just logically contradicts itself. I'm not sure where that goes. But that was in 1854, and in 1950, um, the church infallibly made the pronouncement, the invention, I will, of the bodily assumption of the Immaculate Virgin. So we're talking like 60 years ago. They proclaimed infallibly that just as Jesus rose, lifted up to heaven, the disciples seeing him, so also did Mary not hit the grave, but she rose up and was taken right into heaven. It's as if the Roman Catholic Church is trying to make Mary their Jesus equivalent. And in fact, I would say more prayers are said to Mary in the Catholic Church than are said to Jesus. And why? Because the church has invented these things, but Sola Scripture is, is, is hitting that very issue. You can't invent these things. It's the Bible is the sole efficient role for us. It's right here, you see, Sola Scripture leads us to reject those things, invention of the church. You know, the, the role of the church should be like the role of the Supreme Court. Okay, now, the role of the Supreme Court is changing a little bit. Okay, I'm not an expert in the law. Maybe, Tom, you can help me out with this. But the role of the court is to interpret the law, not to legislate from the bench. So, in other words, the uh, Supreme Court is to take the Constitution, which is a written document, which has the authority, and apply it and, and, and help us out. Not to change it, though, in our day and age... What's it called? They're changing the... I don't know what it's called. Tom, you got, there's a term for that. What's it called? Uh, no, not an amendment. I, I'm talking about they, 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 they just change. They say, oh, well, that's what the original founders thought, but we think differently today, and so that doesn't, doesn't really straight. So playing monkey business with the Constitution. But see, the church is to look at the law and to try to decide to make it clear 
not to make new laws, not to legislate, but to seek to interpret like the supreme law. Well, there's inventions. When inventions come, you've got to reject them. And also when you see corruptions in the church, you've got to say, well, how can, a, how can a church corrupt be so, so lifted high? <clears throat> see, when Luther became a monk, he loved the church. And he was sent one time as a delegation. Uh, I forget exactly what it was, but uh, to do something, to go to Rome. He's like, oh, we need someone to go to Rome. Martin Luther, will you volunteer? He's like, yes, I'll volunteer. I get to see Mecca, right? I get to see the Holy Land. This is where it all began. And boy, was he excited to see Mother, mighty, Mother City of the Church, mighty Rome. Never was there a monk so excited to see the Holy City. And there was excitement when he came into the side of the city. When he, he saw it. From a distance, because they're walking or going on uh, horseback riding. They're, they don't just plop in like a plane. And, and when he saw it, he, he, he fell upon his, the earth and raised his hands and exclaimed, Hail to thee, holy Rome! He was so excited to be surrounded by the holiness of this city that governs the church of Christ. And what could be better than the, the place that governs the church of Christ? But after spending some time in the city, he saw something entirely different, far from seeing a holy city. It was worldly. It was not saturated with godliness. It was saturated with worldliness. It was filled with enthusiasm for the renaissance of classical literature and art. But regarding religion, it was entirely indifferent. Luther was, as Philip Schaff says, shocked by the unbelief, the levity and immorality of the clergy. Money and luxurious living seemed to have replaced apostolic poverty and self-denial. He saw nothing but worldly splendor at the court of Pope Julius II, when he was performing a mass, he said the priests kept saying, faster, 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 faster. <laughs> he said, they can say seven masses in the time that I just said one. Because they want to get in, get out, get in, get out, get in, get out. So, I mean, because they didn't have mind of Christ. They weren't bathing in the word of Christ. They, they were all about themselves, all about humanistic things. And, and later... And he was told, if, if there was a hell, Rome was built on it. If there was a hell, Rome was built on it. Now, he didn't give up on Rome initially. He Rather, he saw Rome as equivalent to ancient Jerusalem in the time of Christ. Lukewarm, unworthy of Christ, but a city of hope and promise. The city in which Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I desired to, to gather you. Your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. And I think Luther had that same heart for this beloved city, Rome. Oh, Rome, oh, Rome. I want to just gather you together into the arms of Christ. He was, he was hopeful, but after times and seasons, his perspective changed, even calling the institution of the Pope the institution of the devil. And if you read any of his writings, Luther didn't mince words. <laughs> he was uh, he's pretty, how do you say it? Not politically correct. Fun to read. Fun to read. Let's put it that way. Um, see, remember also, at, at the time of the Reformation, Luther didn't have this, this vision to, to um, break from the Catholic Church. He had a vision to reform the church, to change the church, to amend the church. But these things were too big. The church couldn't change. So when we think about Sola Scriptura... And we think about tradition. I, I think the best way, really, biblically to understand it is to think about the parallels between the Catholic Church today and the Jewish religion of the Jesus day. There are amazing parallels. 
Um, first of all, Jewish religion is controlled by a hierarchy, highly centralized. You had, you had priests and bishops in the Roman Catholic Church, but in the um, Jewish Church, you had Jewish religion. You had scribes and Pharisees, professional interpreters of Scripture. Uh, they even had their equivalent of the Pope, the high priest, who functioned in roles political every bit as much as spiritual. Why do you think they brought Jesus to the high priest? Because he had the political power clout. So likewise, the Pope is a very political figure and religious. All controlled by the religious hierarchy. Uh, another comparison. Just, they assent to the truths of Scripture. I mean, Jews of Jesus' day didn't deny the Old Testament. In fact, they looked to it with reverence. And so likewise today, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't deny the Bible at all. They look to it with reverence. It's only that they've just piled years of tradition on the Scriptures. In fact, that's what the Jews did. They piled years and years and years of tradition on that. In fact, the Talmud today is 6,000 pages of rabbinic teaching of laws and ethics and philosophy and customs and history. That's what the Jews did. And the, and the, the Catholics, of course, do that same thing. The Catholic Church... Um, believes all this tradition they've got all these popes and cycles and cyclicals and, and papal bulls and and all these pronouncements and so the bible becomes actually a very small portion of what the, the roman catholic church believes and much of their teaching takes you far beyond what's written whether it's a veneration of mary or penance or indulgences or purgatory or prayer to the saints it goes beyond the teaching of the bible just like the jews in jesus day went beyond the teaching of the bible the, the jewish religion of jesus day was a burdensome religion Jesus even said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with their finger. It's a characteristic of the Roman Catholic Church. To be engaged in the Catholic Church is to submit yourself to this burdensome religion. I was just talking to someone this week who is a Catholic, who's not going to church, but said, man, I remember going to the Catholic Church. It just felt like this burden just to go to church and to do all these things and to say all these prayers. I think the Jewish people have the same experience. Uh, I think also just how um, how religiousized it was. I mean, the Catholic Church, you go in there, and it's just like, ooh, all ornate, and the Pope or the, the priests are wearing the dresses, and everything's sacred, and, you know, just, just all, all like ornate, and all about what you say and how you say it. I, I think also many things with the temple became like that. Uh, financially interested, I mean, think about the temple. When Jesus came in, he said, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And how often is the Catholic Church just interested in money, a den of thieves? What about bingo, right? Just all this, bringing in all the money, however you can. It's all about the money and the building and, and growing and expanding. And, and I think even another comparison is that there were some believing Jews in Jesus' day among the masses who felt burdened with their sin. They loved to listen to Jesus. They longed for something better. They wanted to have an easy burden. I think there are genuine believers in the Roman Catholic Church. By and large, they're believing in spite of what the church teaches, not because of it. And in our Protestantized America, that's becoming less so, I believe that there are many Roman Catholics who've been, been Protestantized by the Protestants and bringing that into their church rather than coming from the church's perspective. And God has been gracious to some of them. It's not the majority. And so I think that's the, that's the place that Jesus stepped into. He stepped into a Roman Catholic church, if you will. And so my question to you is, how did Jesus deal with the traditions of the elders of the Jewish church? Because I think that's how we should deal with the traditions of the Catholic Church and stand on Sola Scriptura, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And so how did Jesus deal with the traditions? He smashed them. Never did he speak well of the Jewish traditions. Right, look at Matthew chapter 12. So, so turn back there. Let's just consider just a few verses that speak about uh, Jesus and the Jewish traditions. Matthew chapter 12. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. And then taking the grains, sifting them in your hands like this, and then eating them, because they were hungry. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And they're referring there to their tradition. The tradition says you cannot do work on the Sabbath, and doing this with your seed to put it in your hand is work. They're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus then goes back to the Scripture and just denies their, their, their tradition. He said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those were with him, right? Going back to 1 Samuel, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. Was it not lawful for him to eat? Was it not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? See, in other words, you don't understand the Sabbath and what's permissible in the Sabbath. Your traditions have got you... Um, Distorted. I tell you, something great in the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, plucking heads in the grain was one of those oral traditions the Jews had developed regarding the Sabbath. They figured out what you can do, what you can't do. And in developing all this tradition, they lost the sacred scripture. They overstepped their bounds. And Jesus said, listen, the attitude toward your, your Sabbath should be Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, if you're merciful to the one who's hungry, you can eat. You can eat on the Sabbath. How about Matthew chapter 15? This is even more clear about traditions. And these are just indicative of how he, how he dealt with them. Chapter 15, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? There it is, the tradition, what's been handed down by the elders, what the Jewish rabbis have taught for years and years, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And they had a special formulaic way of how they need to wash their hands before they eat, just to be ceremonially clean. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God has commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whatever, whoever reviles father or mother shall be surely die. But you say, if anyone tells the father or mother what would have been gained from me is given to God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We looked at Leviticus 27, right? And the, the valuation is what you dedicate to God, the Corbin. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. And he's saying that is wrong. Tradition is superseding the scriptures. And it's not. It's the scriptures that supersede. So anytime tradition supersedes, it's wrong. This is the case in the Roman Catholic Church when it's scriptures and tradition. You hypocrites, I think, speak so well to the Roman Catholic Church. Speak so well to what everything that Luther was decrying, the hypocritical nature of the priests and the popes. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And again, he goes back to the scriptures. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. There it is, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. How wrong that is, that tradition then becomes the commandment. Or Matthew chapter 23. I mean, this is... Jesus' lament over the scribes and the Pharisees. Where they're, they're just caught up in the, the legalism. 
we could pull out any of these. I'm just verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of a law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guy and straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. This is often the case when legalism comes, when when tradition comes. You strain out a gnat and you miss the camel. Because you're so concerned about the little minutia of everything you're trying to keep and it all becomes about externals that you miss the heart and flavor of everything. And Jesus condemns them with no mincing of words. Calls them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing, right, to be to be clean and beautiful, verse twenty seven, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. Outwardly you appear righteous to others, but inwardly you're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now I'm not saying this is the case of every priest. But you just look at a priest coming down the road and he's all in his black with his collar, or in his white and his collar, whatever. He's in the church and he looks all somber. He sits up here, and you know what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. Forbid marriage, and all hell breaks loose. And that, that's just not now. That's been for years. The immorality in the church among the, laic, among the priesthood is abundant. But on the outside, you'd never know that. You'd never know it. And certainly there are priests who maintain their celibacy, but there are plenty who don't, and they're known for, for that. It's almost exact parallel. Jesus always condemned the tradition, went back to the word of God. Or consider Luke 16. You don't need to go there, but Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man enjoyed the pleasures of the world, but Lazarus was poor and longed to, longed to eat the scraps of the table. They died, and then he went into Hades, place of torment, fire, and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man in torment cried out to Abraham. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue by my great anguish in the flame. He's burning up in this anguish, eternal fire that never stops. And he's, he's like, I'm hot. I just need to be cooled just a little bit. And, and Abraham says, no, it's impossible. There's this gap between us and what you can't go across there. He says, well, go tell my brothers lest they experience the same fate because it's so horrible what I'm experiencing. You go back. And Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, 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 no. But if, but if Lazarus rises from the dead, shows he's Lazarus, and then comes and tells them they're going to repent, and listen to what he says, right? If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. In other words, Jesus is exalting the Scripture so high. It's not, it's not what the priests are saying. It's not what the fathers are saying. It's always the Scripture that's being lifted up high. And I say that we, the Protestant heritage, sola Scripture, lift the Scriptures high just like Jesus did as he dealt with those involved in tradition. That is the power of the Word of God. That's why Sola Scripture is important, is because the power of the Scriptures, if they, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. Miracles are not going to convince people to believe in Christ. It's the Bible that God will use in the hearts of people to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. And Martin Luther witnessed the power of Scripture. When he, after the Reformation... Well, the Reformation went for a long time. But, but kind of later in life, he sat back reflecting upon, upon his own efforts. And he says, I will preach, speak, write, but I will force no one. Because he knows how you need to come into the kingdom willingly and voluntarily. He says, take me as an example. I stood against the Pope, indulgences, and all papists. But I did so without violence or uproar. I only urged and preached and declared God's word, nothing else. And yet while I was asleep or drinking Wittenberg beer... 
with my friend Philip Melanchthon in Amsdorf, the word inflicted greater injury on popery than prince or emperor ever did. And then here's this famous line, I did nothing and the word did everything. So in other words, as he left the diet of worms, he went away, he translated the Bible, and then that Bible, when it got out in the hands of the people, Martin Luther said, I did nothing, but the word just kept spreading and the word inflicted far more harm upon the papal system and upon the indulgences than ever a prince by force would ever come. It's because Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the Bible that's going to get into the heart of your consciences. Far more than any tradition. As Charles Spurgeon said, The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you do is let it loose and the lion will defend itself. That's why we need to fight for the Bible. That's why we need to do all we can do to love this book, to know this book, and to to press this forth into the the hearts and minds of other people and to to encourage others to know this book because God's work is done through His Spirit, through His Word. Okay, so a big application. Do you believe Sola Scriptura? Now, in some regards, I'm I'm preaching to to the choir. But here... There's a difference between professing to believe Sola Scriptura and practicing Sola Scriptura. You know what what I'm talking about? You can profess, yeah, Sola Scriptura, absolutely, preach it, Steve, you're doing well. But do you practice Sola Scriptura? You know what practicing Sola Scriptura means? It means that you have in your hands the Word of God. The precious Word of God that God has, has given to us. And it, and it means that the, our attitude and our heart towards the Bible is, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Your, your attitude towards the Bible is that, as Job says, give me this more than my food that I eat every day. To practice Sola Scriptura means that Every day you're in the Bible. It means that every day you're scouring its pages to hear from and to know about God. That's what it means to practice Sola Scriptura. And I so long for a church that practices Sola Scriptura. That, that this is where our heart meditates rather than the allurements of the world. And there's lots out there and more that you carry in your pockets to allure you away from the Bible. Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you pray over it? Does Psalm 19, so we have a family that's been working to memorize this fighter verse this past week. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the law that revives our soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You just see David there in Psalm 19 just lifting up the word of God and speaking how good the benefits are. And and then he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold, sweeter also than the drip honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. It's National Donut Day this week. Thursday, right? Was it Thursday? Friday was National Donut Day. Krista comes into my office, <laughs> donut in hand, and says, Steve, happy, Dad, said, Steve said, Dad, happy donut day, happy whatever you said. And I was like, 
I'm counting points. I don't know if I can have that or not. I said it there, and I enjoyed every little last bit of it. And later, had another one. David had... (laughs) When you think about your daily dose of donuts, is this like donuts to you? It's what David says. More desirable than gold, sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. If you desire it, it's easy. If you don't desire it, it's hard. But when you practice Sola Scriptura, it becomes a desire of the Bible. Joel Beakey says, How well do we understand the principle of Sola Scriptura? Well, do we search, love, live, and pray over the Holy Scriptures? Is the Bible the compass that leads us through the storms and over the waves that we encounter in this life? Is the Scripture the mirror by which we dress ourselves, the rule by which we work, the water with which we watch, wash, the fire that warms us, the food that nourishes us, the, the sword with which we fight, the counselor who resolves our doubts and fears, and the heritage that enriches us. Are we learning from Scripture, as John Flavel said, the best way of living and the noblest way of suffering and the most profitable way of dying? Has sola scriptura become a personal watchword, causing us, like Luther and Calvin, to become captive in our consciences to the very words of God? Is that what the Bible is for you? My my message today wasn't wasn't a a read-your-Bible sermon. J.C. Ryle wrote an excellent little booklet, which I'll, I'll forward on to you if you want to read it, uh, talking about just Bible reading. How readest thou? How do you read? And argued far more than I did about practical religion and Bible reading. He says, next to prayer, there's nothing so important in practical religion as Bible reading. And he goes on to press upon our consciences the reason for Bible reading. I, I, my purpose this morning was more theological more let's grasp sola scriptura, but it does come down the same point applicationally. Is, do you love your Bible? Because one, of the Bible one of the things the Bible does in Psalm 19, I've been quoting that, it speaks about what, what the scriptures tells us about our sin as well. Moreover, by your word is your servant warned, in keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And innocent of great transgression. Just talking about sin. Right? One of the things the Bible exposes, and I know we've gone long here. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. I said in the weekly word, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a celebrating the gospel. It's celebrating the core truth of what the Bible teaches, which comes, 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to end there as we think about the scriptures, as we think about Christ, as we think about the importance and priority of that. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the gospel speaks of, of how we're saved. And this is a central point, is, is Christ and Him crucified. I just want to make some comments, give us some time to examine our hearts and our lives and, and celebrate what Christ has done for our souls, which is the clear teaching of the Bible. First Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Here's the gospel. Here's the, the core of what you need to believe and embrace by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, are are you believing in this thing? Are you holding fast to this gospel? Because that's an indication that you're being saved, that you are saved. 
Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with tradition? No. He died for our sins in accordance with what the Father said? No. He died for our sins according to what, what some gathering of rabbis? No. According to the Scriptures is how He died for our sins. No, there's the Scriptures interpreting His life for us, that Christ's death was for our sins. And the Scriptures are doing that. Verse 4, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures were what was teaching you that. And we're going back to the Scriptures because that's the important place to go back. It was Christ crucified for us, raised from the dead, appearing to Cephas and the Twelve and more than 500, appearing to James. And then Paul says, to me... It's one untimely born, least of all, all the apostles. He appeared to me. He saw him on the road to Damascus. But there's the gospel, and are you believing it? That's the message of the Bible. Christ died for our sins. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We're, we're celebrating the, the living reality that Christ is the one who died for our sins, and he told us to remember through the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup together. That's what we have an opportunity to do today. And as 1 Corinthians 11 says, To examine yourself, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink of the cup. So I want to give you a time to examine yourself. Just confess any known sin before the Lord. If you're not following Christ, cry out to him right now. And just say, God, I want to follow you. I I want to understand and embrace this forgiveness your scriptures tell about We'll pray, and then the men will, will come up. So let's, let's pray together. Oh, Father, I, I, I do know that we have been long, and yet I thank you that I don't have a priest looking over me saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, because these are the words of life, oh God. These are the words that are, are precious to us. They're the very words of God. And so, Father, even I, I pray now that we might examine our hearts before you. Look to see, do we really trust that Christ died for our sins? I can remember back to that day on Calvary when he was crushed. He was slaughtered for our sins. And so the bread which is broken symbolizes his body. And his blood was poured out. As his blood was poured out, shed for our sins in his death. So, Father, even I, I pray for those here today without Christ. I, I pray, God, you'd open their eyes to the importance of Scripture. He points out, puts, points us to the gospel and points us to Christ. Because we celebrate the supper as you told us to. So often as you eat it and drink it in remembrance of me, we are eating and drinking today in remembrance of you, of all you've done for us. Thank you that your scriptures are clear. We don't need another source. We don't need to follow traditions of, of people. As we look and follow your scripture and seek to know the ways that you would have us to go. So God be pleased and glorified. And we're eating and drinking this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.